welcome to our bonus episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, well, first, a quick disclaimer. We are recording this after after the movie because we had just a plethora of technical difficulties that day, so... Um, we are going to answer the questions from the chat um, from our live stream, but uh, this is not actually happening directly after the movie. So, uh, you know, anyone who has ever done a podcast knows how this goes. So, <laughs> I know, it do yeah, be like that sometimes. It, it, yeah. yeah, and this time it was especially it was like that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, quick shout out to everyone who actually came to the live stream and also who. Very, very patiently waited as I just fumbled around my computer <laughs> for so long. So thank you. Uh, also, I feel like we should probably just remind everyone that there will be a break between season two and season three. Uh, we're working on season three right now, but um, we also, you know, have lives and stuff. So <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to give ourselves a little break um, between seasons and we'll announce when season three is going to be coming out. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's a movie. We watched it. Uh, <laughs> what'd you guys think overall? I liked the wigs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At one point, we were commenting, like, I think somebody had brought up costuming in general. Um, but, man, after watching a lot of, like, fantasy on Netflix, it, no... Well, okay, actually, that's not true. I was going to say no shade on Netflix, but uh, yeah, no, a little shade on Netflix um, because the wigs in The Witcher are just not good. And the wigs in Lord of the Rings are really good, as are the rest of the costumes. I feel but, like, yeah, one of the biggest things I noticed watching The Two Towers this time was like how many, uh, just thinking about how many details and how many jobs there are that just go into producing practical effects. Do you guys remember actually like, watching the entire credits roll um, back when we would be sitting in the theaters waiting to see if there was like a little teaser or an Easter egg at the end of the credits and just how long. Then eventually it gets to this part of the credits where they're like, okay, we're going to go into a four column view. <laughs> so it's just four <laughs> columns of names and it still goes for like 20 more minutes. Like yeah. so many people work on this shit. And I'm like, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, shows that are being made by studios that are like kind of stripped down are uh, cutting corners on the wigs. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out about this series still is just like the sheer amount of like effort that went into it compared to a lot of other things. Like not to say that other shows and movies don't take effort, but if you watch like the behind the scenes of these movies and you realize how many props they created, how many miniatures they created, and just the sheer amount of like, you know, physical effort it took to get these made. I don't think that's really happening on most of these sets. Someone's got a pair of oh. hobbit feet. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no way. Fully. Or like ears. Yeah. But it's interesting. I was actually just watching something on like Jackie Chan movies the other day. And one of the things they pointed out was it takes a lot of money, right? It's about, like, money and time to get this, like, the really cool effects or the really cool stunts to get them right. And and that was just something that really struck me watching Two Towers was, like, 
they were willing because I think it's really, really nice to spin something as just an effort of love. But I think you also have to sit there and go, no, but they were willing to pay the experts and bring them in. And they were willing to pay people to, like, make this stuff by hand and do it right. And it shows. It really shows, like, yeah, but there is the some quality really, of the movie. I mean, there are some huge budgets happening in movies today. And I feel like now all of that budget just gets spent on the CGI instead of doing it in this way. And, I mean, look, I'm all for, like, improved technology and stuff, but it's, CGI just doesn't look as good. Like, it doesn't look as believable yet as these movies do. And, like, yeah, what are they spending the, like, trillions of dollars for the avengers movies on you know it's it's not the detailed costumes literally it's on marketing uh i you know i was thinking about the i rewatched the the very first scene of two towers today when you see the camera pans like there's all these helicopter shots of the mountains and then you see gandalf fighting the balrog and that's the one scene in this movie that i feel like is almost certainly mostly cgi and it was what? still you better. Don't think they actually you mean they didn't make Ian McKellen fight a Balrog? <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure they didn't. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm so dumb. Anyway, I I watched it and I was like, you know, I like to. I always am on my high horse about how practical effects are better than CGI, and you just can't have a good movie that's mostly CGI because CGI just like doesn't look good. But really, like, you know. In all fairness, you know, watching the scene, the Balrog Gandalf fight is really cool. And I think it it reminded me of like, you know, one of the things that I think has gotten lost in the CGI focus in movies now is that you don't have to do every single possible camera angle. Just because CGI makes it possible to show like what, I don't know, like a flea on someone's boot would see of like uh, our main character (laughs) in the air in a helicopter, you don't have to show that. And most of the camera angles in that Gandalf Balrog scene, I swore I was not going to talk about camera angles before recording, but this this is the last time I'll I'll mention it. But most of the camera angles are just like you see Gandalf's face and you see the Balrog's face and you see them just hitting each other. And that's perfect. That's exactly what you want. I think the other thing, too, is a lot of CGI now is used for... I mean, there's a lot of people that really love the scene in... Return of the King. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but the you know the one where Legolas is on the elephant. Yeah, you know if, people, if people if yeah. people are yeah. being spoiled by this, then fuck off. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But people like really loved that scene, and for me, that's one of the worst scenes in the movies because that's the only one that I can pick out as being like this is not real. Um, yes, and, yeah. And I think the problem is when you look at CGI in movies now, the things they're trying to do with CGI are not things that obey the laws of physics. And that makes them like really, really not believable. And obviously the Balrog like doesn't have to obey the laws of physics. But in that scene, like he's just falling, right? And he falls at a realistic rate at, and like he, they don't do anything weird with it. And I think that's what makes it like, okay, I'm still in this and not like, oh, that's not physically possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, like, one of the other things I keep thinking about, too, is there's so much a desire to pick, like, the big names. Like, Marvel didn't always used to do this. Like, some of their 
franchises arguably, like, the Avengers franchise arguably started with a bunch of people who weren't big names at the time. Um, ah, yes, that but I think unknown Robert really... Downey Jr. guy. <laughs> well, but, like, he was on the outs, right? Like, yeah, he was not a good bet for Hollywood for many years before they cast him in Iron Man. And Chris Evans had done a bunch of, like, not-so-great rom-coms. Um <laughs> I mean, have you, you know. ever seen a not another teen movie <laughs> with Chris Evans? I, but I've seen no, but I've seen What's Your Number, and uh, oh boy, I've that never sure seen is a any film. Chris Evans's early work. I'm not really a Marvel movie watcher, but I've. It's funny, it's striking to me how I've never seen any of these people's other movies. I don't think I've ever even seen another Robert Downey Jr. movie. Yeah, well, but my like my point on that was okay. So then you're you end up <laughs> picking people who they show up on screen and you're sitting there going, like I saw this tweet about Whoopi Goldberg the other day, right? Where it was just like, every time Whoopi Goldberg shows up, I'm not like, oh, that's a nun. You're like, no, that's Whoopi Goldberg, right? And I think one of the things that really honestly works for me in these movies, and it's a combination of like the lighting is really good and the color grading is really good and the costumes are fantastic and the makeup work and the wigs are all really good. But like, the characters are so inhabited by their actors, right? Like, so one of the questions in the chat, I'm going to drag us more or less on the rails a little bit, but it was, do you find it challenging to keep the book and movie versions of the characters separate as you read? And I think for me, one of the things that helps keep the characters separate is that the movie versions of the characters are all really like I know who they are it's not oh here's Dominic Monaghan in a wig I'm just like no 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 like these are Mary and Pippin right right there it's also it's it's a different kind of a wig right like (laughs) it's a different kind of good wig is putting someone in a character who's not like a a face that's super recognizable except for like with a few exceptions right like Christopher Lee and Liv Tyler, and to some degree, Kate Blanchett. It's interesting, actually, that the that these movies were made at a time when method acting was kind of the most respected way to be an actor. Like, that was a... Um, people were really into that, that there was, like, this kind of, uh, like, halo surrounding method acting. And if you and that was the idea of, what, like, what, like, a great performance was, was, like, a, a an actor that disappears into the character. Um but if you if you want to do that, you can also just you can get like a very similar effect by just casting people that the audience does not know. And so you so their first experience with that actor is as this character. And then that's who they associate it with. Mm-hmm. All this talk of wigs is making me think we have to at some point do a live stream of the Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, the Ven Value Vervigs. Ven Value Vervigs. Yeah, I think like the thing about the keeping the book and movie versions of the characters separate is that it's been so long since I've read the books that I think in my mind I was just like wholly associating the characters with the movie characters and then coming back to the book has almost been kind of jarring for me being like, "Oh, that's not what Aragorn was like at all." <laughs> and I think like the yeah, the funny thing is, like, we, as we talk about the books, what, a lot of what we talk about is how they've simplified a lot of the characters for the movies, right? How they've made them less complex, made their character arcs uh, less long, and 
we've complained about that a decent amount, but I think what you do get from the movie that you maybe don't get from the book is just like the idea of a real person playing that character. I think some of the the realness is lost in the books of, of some of these characters where you feel like they are fantasy characters. But when you see them on screen, and part of this is because of the acting, you're like, oh, like this is a person that I understand. What did you guys think yeah. of um what did you guys think of the now that we're two movies in, the movie portrayal of Gandalf compared to the book version? Because we've talked a lot on the podcast about the book version of Gandalf and the ways that he's a lot more frustrating as a character than we remembered him being in the movies. So like seeing the seeing the two towers again, did you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know I rag a lot on both Gandalf and Aragorn as we read, but I think part of that is the thing that is missing in the books for me a lot of the time is okay yes some of their actions are frustrating right and that like the actions themselves are frustrating but the other piece that's missing is that sense of humanity or warmth that someone like ian mckellen can bring just through facial expressions right he says something and yes he's being cryptic but then his he does his little Ian McKellen eye twinkle, and you're like, oh, okay. That I guess. was the thing like, I noticed too. Yeah. No, sorry. Finish your. Oh, book. I mean, like, no, but like the Ian McKellen eye twinkle is a fucking weaponized, right? <laughs> but it's true even for like Vigo. You know, Vigo does things where it's like it's not necessarily. He smolders. He smolders hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like the words you're saying are one thing, but then he'll give like a little half grin, right? Or he'll kind of look away and shrug a little bit. And you get that sense of humility, right? Or of knowing that some of the stuff he's saying is a little ridiculous. And there's that self-awareness that's really charming that you don't get from the books. It's really funny because usually I have the opposite reaction and that's because most books will give you a lot of what characters are thinking and you lose that in a movie, right? Because you don't get to, unless you have a voiceover, which is usually dumb. Um, but in this case, it's like the opposite because Tolkien gives us so little of what these characters are thinking that you like yeah, the, really value the movies, this humanity. The movies have this thing that like after we watched The Two Towers, I decided to identify as the Gandalf look which is when Gandalf looks almost at the camera or like looks just off camera in this very pointed way where you're like, it's almost like it's a, it's supposed to be like a cue to you that like something important is happening. You know what I'm talking about? Like Gandalf will like, he kind of like looks and he like looks very seriously. Um, or he like looks and he has the twinkle in his eye and it replaces all these moments in the books where Gandalf will do something that's super cryptic and it just might never be explained. Like sometimes it's explained, but I'm pretty sure that like sometimes in the books, especially in the two towers, like in the, um, the Rohan storyline, Gandalf just says things or does things and they are never wrapped up. So like the, the movie version, the, the movie version of Gandalf, I thought was like really different in that way. Yeah. So keeping us, you know, as you said, Ashani, moving along here. So obviously, like we had some of these characters that we love the casting choices of. And I think part of the reason that this works so well is because almost the entire cast of this movie is just super likable in their roles. Um, but if there is anybody that, and this this is a question from the chat, if there's anyone that you would recast 
uh, who who would that character be and who would you cast as them? I feel like we talked about this after Fellowship and it's hard. I mean, it's it's not an easy question because it's a little bit like, okay, who do I think like could have been replaced with a stronger actor? But then I sit there and I go, I don't know that I could pick someone who would do a better job, right? Or who would do a job. I mean, inevitably, right, we can go, Orlando Bloom's acting choices are hilarious <laughs> throughout this entire trilogy. But, but Legolas I love himbo, himbo Legolas. Yeah. Like, I don't. <laughs> I I want a no thoughts head empty like beautiful moronic elf boy. Plus, after reading absolute, it, it's kind absolute of himbo. canon, right? I <laughs> yeah, I know who I wouldn't recast. That's like a way easier question. Like I and I like I would not recast Theoden in a thousand years. He was like he's no. like one of my favorite casting no, choices perfect, ever. Yeah. How could you ever recast uh, Grima Wormtongue? You know, oh, um, Brad Dourif bringing it. One, yeah. Um, and then like Andy Serkis as Gollum. I know I'm just like listing characters and the actors, but they're all like they're they all just do a really good job. It's it's not it's not the kind of movie that really lends itself to recasting, which is funny because that's like that is a thing that people do tend to like to do in movies that are adaptations answer. of books. Oh, you have one? I ha- yeah, I have an answer for who I would recast, and it's probably pretty obvious, but I I I hate Arwen. <laughs> Like, I just, I really hate her on-screen portrayal. Um, And it's not really Liv Tyler's fault, I don't think. I mean, she's not given a lot to work with here, but her delivery also is just, like, so soft. It's so meh. And I want to see just somebody, like, a little bit stronger in the role who has, like, the ability to have more of a sense of, like, here's what I'm doing, but, like, I'm doing it because these are my choices. Um... And not because, like, I'm just hopelessly following Aragorn around or, you know, doing what my dad tells me, (laughs) like, whatever it is. Um, So I don't have, like, an answer on who I would cast as Arwen. The first person that comes to mind is honestly Kara Knightley. Mm. Sorry, who'd who'd you say, Wanda? Oh, I was going to say Jennifer Connelly, who kind of looks a little bit like Liv Tyler. She was the girl in Labyrinth, um, also was in Requiem for a Dream, right? And some other things. She just, she looks a little bit, she has that, like, she, she just has a very, like, intense face that naturally is, a, like, a lot more emotive than Liv Tyler's face. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know who that is because I haven't seen either of those movies. Um, but Great. Glad I helped. <laughs> but I think, you like, you're spot on in, like, the reasoning, right? Like, somebody who just is able to show more on their face um, to kind of bring a little bit more life into what's not a lot of scri- script writing to work with. Mm-hmm. Honestly, yeah. with like the the resurgence of um, like Ming Na Wen, I'm like she could have killed it as yeah, Arwen, like right? I'm like like let her do. We know she can be a badass, like, and also. Like, at that point, I think had already been in Joy Luck Club. Like, there are yeah. people, like, there are actresses out there who I'm know a, I'm how to... I'm for a Dame Maggie Smith as Arwen. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, I, I feel like Zoe Saldana <laughs> might be a good Arwen, too. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. She is always, like, every time I see her on screen, I'm just like, she understands intensity. Yeah. In a really, like, without having to be, she can be big, but, like, she doesn't have to be, to be yeah. intense. I like I like Zoe Saldana as an idea, because, like, Elrond, you know, Hugo Weaving, whenever he appears, you're just like, oh, my God. I can't look away. He's so <laughs> yeah. charismatic. And he just has that, he just has this thing about him where you're like, you're a freak. And I feel like Zoe Saldana gives me that same feeling. It's Yeah, kind she of kind rare. of has that agelessness too of elves, you know? Yeah. It is a little bit like this person is like intensely charismatic, but also seems like they might murder me just a little. But you need the elves to be like, to feel like that, right? They need to yeah. be Yeah, no, I'm not complaining and, yeah. about the energy. Like, I like that energy. But I think that's the energy, right? Like, I'm thinking, what's the sort of similar feeling I get between Hugo Weaving and Zoe Saldana? And I'm like, it's that yeah, I wouldn't that be surprised. Yeah, right? It's like, the, somehow, even in, like, kind of goofy costumes, they always seem like they are a little bit of a threat. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as much and as I, I hate that. the Hobbit movies, I actually did like the casting of Lee Pace. <laughs> Another you, person who just kind of has Pace. threatening energy. Yeah. He's so scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lee Pace has Arwen. I'm not. I'm not hallway. even. I'm not even against it. <laughs> just make Arwen a man. Make Aragorn gay. It would be better than the casting that they did in these movies. Well, and I do think like. If we're going to talk about differences between the movie and book and casting, right? Like, I think we've already talked about some of the good differences in terms of, like, hey, a lot of the nonverbal acting work is actually really lovely. I know during the movie watch we talked about it's really nice to see the splicing together of the storylines. And then, I'm sorry, but, like, the weird Arwen dream sequences are actually somehow worse <sighs> than so Frodo bad. and Sam walking. Yeah, they're so, so bad. bad. I, you know, I also my other gripe with the um, the the cutting in between the storylines, which on the whole I think is one of the the best innovations that the movie had, is that they shaft the Ent storyline so much that they take a, a storyline that was that primarily in the book consists of, and we talked about this, like uh, Treebeard just knowing everything and being the smartest person and the oldest person in Middle-earth and just talking about stuff to Merry and Pippin and pretty quickly deciding that he wants to go to war, you know, with, uh, with Saruman. And they change all that. They take out all of the, like, actually, like, cool, substantial stuff that Treebeard says and they replace it with just an hour it feels like of him just dithering with the other ants trying to figure out whether they want to go to war or not and it's like it comes off it's like it's supposed to send some kind of message but it's not really clear what message it does send in fact in the context of like the like Iraq war stuff going on at the time it might actually be insidious I don't know but it's it's the saddest it's the, like the saddest treatment of any of the characters in the book I think because Treebird is so cool, the ants are so cool, and they get absolutely shafted. I also feel like I I know this is canon that he like talks slowly, but sorry, my cat is just meowing in here. I apologize. Uh I can't hear. Okay, cool. Um, I can, but it's not a problem. <laughs> Mare, 
stop. It's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was going to say... <laughs> I, I feel like they didn't need to make him talk that slowly in the movie. It's really frustrating to watch. And I think they could have just had him walk slowly and have a deep voice, and that would have been enough. That's right, yeah. And they, they, they've already, they already took a lot of liberties with Treebeard. They took out the smooth arms. <laughs> Which would have been horrifying, to be fair. <laughs> How dare they? How dare they not put smooth arm Treebeard in the Trogdor movie? arm Treebeard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we talked a lot about this a little bit, like when we were recording the podcast for this, this season. But Treebeard actually describes the slowness of the Entish language. And it's not that they literally talk slowly. It's that it's like, it's kind of just like etymologically slow or like syntactically, like it takes a while to describe things. But there's no reason that like somebody that it's like, it's like imagining that like somebody that speaks German would like add a bunch of extra syllables to English words when they spoke English. Like it just doesn't make any sense. No, that's a really good point, Wanda. Like, it's not that it takes a long time to say things because he's just speaking at 0.5x speed. It's that it just, like, the sentence structure is long, right? They have to describe a lot. Which is genuinely a thing that, like, happens in human languages. I was reading something the other day about translations between French and English and the reason why French translations or, like, a French book translated into English gets a lot shorter and an English book translated into French gets longer. And it's not because like for some reason they've changed the kerning, right? Or like the spacing of the font. It's like, no, the structure of the language is such that English puts in like has built in a lot of shortcuts or ways to like not include certain parts of speech. And French doesn't have that or like has less of it. And in the same way, like, Entish could be said at a normal speaking pace, but just has more of, like, more prepositions. And the way you phrase stuff is, like, the person that was doing this thing as opposed to, like, oh, yeah, and you know she did this, right? Yeah, and the scene, like, that scene where they're caucusing, the the enter are mooting, and they, and, you know, they take a long time. And Mary's like, why are you taking so long? And he's like, well, it takes a long time to say anything in Old Entish. And in the movie that comes out, it's like a joke because, you know, you're supposed to understand that these are just slow beings. But imagine if, like, they all spoke in English at a normal pace and then all of a sudden they had an Ent moot and took forever. Like, that would get across the point of the Entish language being different much more effectively. You know, the the other thing I noticed, like speaking of languages, I just wanted to get this in here real quick, is that do you guys remember that in the in the books, the orcs spoke in an orcish language and it was like it's it's presumed that it's basically being translated for you in the text? Yeah, like how they say, yes, because this was the hola thing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the whole, right, where the orcs say hola. <laughs> we are still unclear. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, right. I mean, I either it's just straight up Ola or it's Hola or it's Hala. And I don't know that any of those are a good <laughs> I don't yeah, know that I, any of those are good. I don't know about the orcs saying Hala. I'm not sure about that. Um but I, I thought it was like I thought it was interesting watching this as it was the first time I realized that the orcs speak English. 
as opposed to having the orcs speak in a in a Mordor tongue and translate it at the bottom of the screen like you do with the elves. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. That's true, yeah. I hadn't picked up on that. They they all do kind of speak with these like weird Cockney accents. Right. Which you kind of have to wonder like how much of that is accent and how much of that is just like they had these horrible prosthetics in their mouth and they're like just doing their best to get words out intelligibly. Well, some of them are straight. Some of them do straight up have a Cockney accent like the SpongeBob guy that is Saruman's lackey, right? Yeah, that was the one that Navia pointed out during the screen. (laughs) Was like that just guy just sounds like a lower class England guy, (laughs) Um, and but then like the other ones, like the Urukai, sound like yeah, like they're like they're they're choking. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, it definitely makes the orcs are Kiwis, right? Aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, so it might just be their accent. I don't really know very well what the New Zealand accent sounds like. Like it sounds vaguely Australian. I know that, but. There are definitely some differences. I know they say fush and chips. <laughs> <laughs> if they want to say sex, they say six. They do. No, wait, no. If they want to say six, they say sucks. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> no, no, no do. that's like not su- true. It's like sex and seven. They do say that. One time I really? was on a ski lift with this little kid who was from New Zealand and she was trying to tell her mom like what time they should meet up and she was like, let's meet at sucks o'clock. Sucks. Sucks at sex o'clock. Sucks. Yeah. Uh, Wait, no, you're right though. None but, of us are good at accents. Let's no, just put it like that. This is all terrible. I should cut this all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Nope. We're uh, committed. <laughs> We're not Can we talk about Bernard Hill's glow up in this movie? <laughs> This is not a question anybody asked in the chat, but I just want to, I just want to, can we talk about Bernard Hill's glow up in the movie? Oh my uh, God. He looks so good. Also, he's so good. He really does. Dayton. Yeah. Yeah. He looks amazing. All right. Next, next question. <laughs> okay. All right. You want to hit this uh, last question from the chat? Uh, okay, yeah. So the question here is, do you think Smeagol or Gollum represents the true nature of the character more? Is one personality the real one? And I know we talked about this a decent amount, like, in the actual podcast episodes, but I want to, like, make this a specific to movie question, because I think this character is a little bit different in the movies than he is in the books. Um, So, like, I'm going to reframe this question as, what do you think Andy Serkis was trying to convey about which is the true nature of this character? What I thought was interesting in the, in the, no, sorry, you should, you you should go, Ashani. Well, what I thought was interesting in the in the movies, it's so hard to distinguish and keep apart the like Gollum Smeagol dichotomy in the movies as opposed to the Smeagol Gollum dichotomy in the books. But the big difference in my mind is that in the movies they really really work hard to get you on sort of on Smeagol's side and make you think like Smeagol's the real one by making it clear that like the Gollum is bullying the Smeagol, right? But I don't remember that being a thing in the books so much. See, that's like the, interesting because I yeah. feel like that's a very different take from how I read or like how I watch the movies. Which, I mean, you're right in that I do feel like the movies portray Smeagol way more sympathetically. Um, and like clearly the intention is to get the audience to like like Smeagol more, support Smeagol more. Um, 
But I don't know that it's that is done with the intention of having it be that Smeagol is the quote unquote like original one or like the true one. To me, that's more about like here is somebody who's genuinely feeling like very conflicted. And one of the things that we did actually talk about when we tried to do this or I tried I talked about when we tried to do this the first time was this idea of people have different facets of themselves that they show in different circumstances and with different people. And it doesn't mean that those two facets, like one of them is a lie, that the the person who shows up in the office and the person who shows up with friends and the person who shows up like when you're buying something from like a retail store, right? Like all of those people might behave slightly differently to the same dilemma, right? Like my frustration tolerance when I'm in the office versus my frust like the way I'll show or express frustration in the office versus the way I'll show or express frustration with my friends and the way I'll be frustrated when I'm like having a bad retail experience is going to be different. And it doesn't yeah, and, mean that and any of those responses person, aren't authentic. Right. And you might be the kind of person that like has a sort of a different personality around different people. And it's not because you're uh, a master manipulator or, um, you know, like, like part of your, the way that you present is not real. It's just really proof of how much people influence each other and how complicated every character is. Yeah. Although I'll push back a little bit that I think this is a little different than that though, because typically when people have different facets of their personality, those facets of their personality aren't like talking to each other, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, I, it's definitely more extreme than just like, oh, it's a facet of personality. It's like, no, these are different selves. Right. And it's not even like a, a Jekyll Hyde situation where he's like different people at different times. It's like these two components of his persona personality are at war with each other constantly, basically. Like Gollum is trying to influence Smeagol. And Smeagol is trying to, at least in the movie, for a, a great part of it, like trying to get away from Gollum. Well, that's that's how the movie shows it, right? That's that's kind of what I was trying to bring up a second ago, is that the Smeagol and Gollum dichotomy in the movie is like very antagonistic. They seem to be struggling with each other. But the way that I remember it playing out in the books is that it's just, these are just literally two sides of the same, these are just two personalities in the same body. And it is more Jekyll and Hyde-ish. Yeah, I don't, it's hard to say. I they don't know. do at one point, like, talk to each other, right? Like, there's a point where Gollum is talking to himself and, like, the voice kind of changes back and forth. Yeah, we did a whole script reading of it. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know that you can say, like, one personality is the real one, right? Like, I think one personality might arguably be older, but I also think, like, there's an element of Smeagol, especially in the movies, but, like, there's an element of Smeagol that feels like it was shaped by the emergence of the Gollum personality. Like, is that t- totally crazy to say? Whoa. Wait. Could you explain that? Yeah. So, like, the version of Smeagol, like, original Smeagol, when he was a, a Fisher person or whatever it was, like, a, there's a 
a term for them and I don't remember what it is. The pseudo hobbits. Um, like the version of Smeagol that existed at that time was not so like meek or cowering as the Smeagol we see in the present day. And so there's a part of me that kind of sits there and goes like, maybe technically like the one named Smeagol is an older personality, but I think he has become more like sort of cowardly or more subservient or like less assertive because the Gollum personality is now there, like with the, and the Gollum personality is really domineering. Right. right? Yeah. And like very, very clear about like, this is what we should do. This is what like, Let's just go murder people. Um, and so I feel like in response to that, like, Smeagol has become increasingly timid. Right. It's like there's he, no he context like that, right? to make the Smeagol. It's like there's nothing There's nothing that the Smeagol personality can exist for at this point. Right. Except... Well, I almost wonder if the Smeagol personality specifically exists to be the victim. Right. Like, that this character can't reconcile with some of the decisions he's made. So he's made a version of himself be a victim to another part of himself. Yeah. Right. Like, like as a self-protective thing. Right. That he's sense like, of oh, like, it wasn't me who did those things and I regret it. And I was just a victim of this other Gollum who was the evil one who did those horrible things. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good read. And and sort of explains like why like the, why the Smeagol character does come out around Frodo. And again, it's like not to like beat this horse too hard, but like it, it is again treated very differently in the movies, right? Where the movies kind of say the relationship with Frodo is enough to like bring out this genuinely, you know, this older personality called Smeagol, or almost like to rehabilitate the personality of Smeagol from just an artifice into an actual reality yeah yeah it's interesting i mean i'm like now i'm sitting here going oh i wish we'd read like the books more recently or i wish like i had gone back and read a little bit more because i feel like there are nuances in the way it's depicted that i just don't like i would have needed to have read the book like this week to be able to talk more about it but i think it's something as we pick up recording book chapters again, like I can see us coming back to this idea because I do think it's something worth like looking at more closely as we go back to the book. Yeah. I like the theory of Smeagol as like a, as, as like a protective layer for Gollum. I'm going to keep an eye on that as I read going forward. Yeah. And if I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think these two aspects of, his persona are going to start to merge a little bit more in the coming book. I genuinely have no memory of that. So I'm like, possibly we'll find out. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we'll I actually see. don't remember for sure either. So we'll see. Um, okay. I, I know we have uh, a lot of content, so I want to just wrap up by getting your thoughts on what you are excited about for season three. Oh man. I'm excited to spend some time in Gondor that's my that's my favorite thing uh, about the return of the king is getting to like live in that that part of the world because it feels like in a lot of ways Gondor is like uh, like a really core part of the thesis of Lord of the Rings, 
right? It's like the the epitome of what like quote unquote men are or the race of men is, and I think will be um, uh, revelatory to spend some time there and see how it might compare to the society that we live in today. That's cringe, I know. Well, that's okay, because what I'm really looking forward to is for us once and for all answering the question of, is Tolkien racist? Um, no, um, in all seriousness, I I think what I'm looking forward to is just seeing what the book's going to be like. It feels that at this point, having read two books and basically being surprised every couple of chapters about the style or the approach or the content that I don't want to have any expectations for Return of the King because I think whatever I remember about the books from so many years ago, it's not going to be that, right? Like both of the other books have not been the thing I remembered. And so I'm just excited to see what it ends up being because I don't know. Yeah, I am also excited to reread what I think was probably my favorite book of the three. And there's a particular chapter that I'm especially excited to discuss with you guys, which is um, the Battle of Pelennor Fields, because that's the chapter that I like have always considered my favorite chapter and have gone back to reread a bajillion times. But it's been a while, so I'm excited to revisit it with you. Uh, it also contains my favorite scene, which you all know because I have it tattooed on my arm. <laughs> but, but I'm excited oh, yeah, to talk about be great. it with you guys. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, the the uh, the increased AON exposure that we're going to get in Return of the King is also something I'm looking forward to because I know that she's your favorite character and I want to discuss your favorite character with you. Indeed. Awesome. All right. We're going to wrap there for today. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there will be a bit of a break before season three comes out, but keep an eye on our Twitter and Tumblr uh, for updates and uh Thanks you thank thanks you. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh if you couldn't tell this is an unedited episode, this is just bonus content for you. Uh so thanks for listening. <laughs>